you must be heavily armed because the Christian life is warfare. I know there are timid types even in this congregation today who shudder at any mention of combat. They're non-confrontational, fearful, and just want everyone to get along, not realizing that to be a Christian means to be a warrior. You're in a fight to the death, and you have violent opponents who will stop at nothing to take your eternal soul and drag you to hell. And you're repeatedly commanded in the scriptures to resist them, fight against them. Battle lines have been drawn, and the warring parties can never get alone. Think of some of the great men in scripture who fought, who were warriors. Abraham in Genesis 14, in a a daring nighttime rescue of his nephew Lot, led a force of 300 armed men against a huge force, saw great military success. Or Moses in Exodus 17, who fought against the Amalekites in triumph. Or Joshua, who we're studying on Sunday evenings, and I do hope you'll be with us tonight at 6 p.m. as we continue our exposition of, of the book of Joshua. In Joshua 10, the Lord repeatedly tells Joshua to go to the promised land and take it by force, to be strong, to not fear the Canaanites. And the Lord promises, I've delivered them into your hand. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And so Joshua does that. In fact, that's the one thing we do know about Joshua is he is a fierce, a faithful warrior. Or his best friend, Caleb. Caleb, who at age 85, and I want to make an application to this later in the sermon, at 85, says to his general, Joshua, I'm strong for war. Give me that mountain, the hardest conquest, and I shall drive the enemies out. Or perhaps the most famous warrior of all believers, David, who as a teenager, David says to the warrior giant, the Philistine Goliath, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you and take your head from your shoulders. I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, the battle is the Lord's. We're told about all these heroic, brave warriors in Scripture, and many others, to put steel in our spine, to have no reticence to take up arms against our three enemies. This morning, we're going to look in great depth and see Peter's imperative to us to be warriors against those three enemies. Our elder, Frederick Marsnick, just prayed about them in his prayer. I thought I probably should just let Frederick go on. He really preached what I need to say, that you have those three enemies and we're going to look at them in some depth and see what Peter is commanding the believer, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let's seek the help of the Holy Spirit now as we prepare to open this word. Almighty God, in your word are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so we ask that you would open our eyes that we may see wonders of your being and your power Give us grace that we may clearly understand and choose the way of your wisdom, we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. There's a motif that runs through all the New Testament. New Testament scholars call it the indicative imperative motif. And it's certainly the literary structure of our text. I hope you're looking at 1 Peter 4 carefully, those first three verses. And you see this over and over. You see it in John's writings, Paul's writings, and especially in Peter's writings. You have the indicative of the gospel. 
telling us some aspect of what God has done for us in Christ. And that's the basis for the imperative, the ways we are to respond in faith and obedience. Now, I want you to look carefully, first of all, at the indicative, for that's the order in which it comes to us. Notice verse 1. The indicative in our text is, Christ suffered for us in the flesh. This is about what Christ has done. It is a statement of accomplishment. Past tense fact. Christ suffered in the flesh. Now, in a moment, we're going to talk about the imperative in great detail, but I want you to notice first, this is always grounded in the indicative. Now, what I want to do is, is I want you to see maybe in some depth what is meant by this phrase, Christ suffered for us in the flesh. I want to distinguish for you at least three distinct types of suffering. And all of our obedience, all the imperative flows out of these three types of suffering. The first is simply our Lord's physical suffering. This week I meditated upon the four gospel accounts and looked at all the different ways that it spells out that Christ suffered. And the lowest, although the one that usually grabs hold of our mind with the tightest grip is Christ's physical suffering. But think about what we are told in the gospels. At the beginning of Christ's sufferings after his arrest in Mark 14, that he was first just simply blindfolded and beaten. And this includes, Mark 14 goes on to say, that he was slapped in order to humiliate and demean him. This is the officers of the court by the palms of their hands. And then in Mark 15, we're told that Jesus was bound. You can be sure this was not done gently. And then... Mark 15, the, until it comes to the crucifixion, the most painful thought is that our Lord was scourged, we're told in Mark 15. Scourging was an incredibly painful torture inflicted by a sadistic Roman soldier who was a master at this. The men who were in charge of the scourge used a whip with multiple leather cords that had bits of bone and sharp pieces of metal embedded throughout. And this demonic instrument was designed to inflict maximum pain and blood loss. Each stroke of the scourge in the hands of this master torture artist would rip out large pieces of flesh and they would expose the skeletal muscles completely. Many eyewitness accounts of scourgings testify that by the time the Roman soldier was done, the victim was disemboweled. And so Jesus was bent over a post his hands tied to a post. And Jesus endured this horrific pain of scourging at the hands of a Roman soldier as a crowd of onlookers watched, laughed, mocked, and cheered. Mark 15 goes on to describe the physical sufferings of Jesus. After the scourging, Jesus by this point has lost a massive amount of blood, surely pints. His back has been ripped to shreds. It looks like a hanging piece of raw meat. He would at this point have been incredibly weak. The Roman soldiers drag him away to the governor's palace where they commence a new level of humiliation. They twist together a crown of thorns. The thorns that were used were anywhere from 8 to 12 inches long. They ram the symbol of the curse. Of course, you know that. These thorns were the symbol of the curse. 
Thorns and thistles didn't exist before the fall. They ran this crown of thorns down on the head of the second Adam, paying for the sins of the first Adam. Then in Mark 15, still continuing, to add insult to injury, the soldiers beat this Christ on the head with a false scepter. They're mocking him, and so they take a, a made-up scepter, the signal of a symbol of so-called kingship, and with now fresh blood from the, the crown of thorns running down on Jesus' face, the soldiers begin to beat his head, driving the thorns deeper into his temples and forehead. The lacerations are so many, the bruisings and the swelling are so profound that Jesus is now unrecognizable. He's just a piece of raw flesh and dry blood. And this is done to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 52. His visage and form were marred more than any other man. And then in that state, weakened, blood lost, the cross is laid across Jesus' back the own instrument of his death, and he is told to drag it through the streets of Jerusalem. And finally, in weakness, he collapses, and the cross handed to another man, Simon the Cyrene, and Jesus trudges step by step to the top of Golgotha's hill. And there the soldiers throw him down on his back, exacerbating his already open wounds. The Roman soldiers grab his hands, they place iron stakes over his wrist joint and they drive giant nails into them. He's lifted up and affixed to the vertical beam, now forming the familiar T of the cross, where his feet are nailed as well. Then begins the pinnacle of our Lord's physical suffering. The cause of death in a crucifixion was typically suffocation, with the entire weight of your body hanging by your wrist. You can't properly exhale. And so for the next six hours, every single breath Jesus takes is excruciating beyond measure. The cumulative physical suffering and pain that Jesus endures throughout this execution is some of the worst imaginable in human existence. But the two other types of suffering are far worse. Look at our text in 1 Peter 4.1. Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, I've only mentioned the first type of suffering, just the raw, brutal, animal-like physical suffering. But the second level of suffering, if we can attribute this in such a way, there were the sufferings of the psychological, emotional pain of complete rejection by men. This one who was supposed to receive the happy, joyful, voluntary worship of every creature is now systematically being rejected by everyone he comes in contact with. In Mark 15, we read about false witnesses who line up to slander Jesus, and Jesus must hear this. Even though he's completely sinless, he has crimes being attributed to him, every one of them false, every one a lie. We read again in Mark 15 that more men line up to spit on him. So to be the creator and have your creatures show such disrespect and anti-worship and venom and hatred. 
And then again in Mark's gospel, we read that the Sanhedrin, that 70-man body of leadership who are supposed to represent a holy God, they mock him. They mock him by saying, prophesy to us, mocking his office as prophet. To be the omniscient one and then have your knowledge of all future events as the prophet dismissed out of hand is devastating to our Christ. And then that, that level of punishment goes on. Jesus' own countrymen, his fellow Israelites, his fellow sons of Abraham, as they stand in the street in front of Pilate's hall, they have the opportunity to ask for his release. Instead, they demand his crucifixion. Instead, asking Barabbas to be proved, uh, set free, thus proving once and for all that men love darkness rather than light. And then in perhaps one of the ultimate displays of humiliation, Jesus is stripped naked. So his garments could be divided among the Roman soldiers. Any shred of dignity or honor is now completely gone. Instead of worship, he's receiving humiliation. And as Jesus is placed on the cross, he's now identified with criminals. They're on either side. And to make it even worse, even the criminals we read in Scripture on either side are mocking him. But then there's the third and the worst form of suffering. Look at, once again at 1 Peter 4.1. The, the indicative that we are to ground all our imperatives in in this text is since Christ suffered for us in the flesh. The greatest suffering to Jesus was his suffering of that incredible pain of the Father's rejection and the abandonment by his inner circle of those men that he had loved and discipled. He's repeatedly betrayed by Peter. Think of Peter as he's writing these words. Look at verse 1. Peter knows as he writes these words, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, he knows that the greatest suffering that Jesus incurred was that suffering of abandonment and rejection by the Father and by him. As Jesus looks across Annas' courtyard and he hears Peter disclaim that he even knows Jesus three times, then the pinnacle of the suffering is when the earth goes dark, showing that the Father has turned his face away and will not intervene to rescue his son. And at that moment comes the pinnacle of all of Christ's suffering, the haunting cry the desperate shriek of total abandonment. When Jesus screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the sufferings of Christ. But we've not yet set the indicative carefully if we don't look at the whole indicative. Look at 1 Peter 4.1, where Peter makes sure to write, since Christ suffered in the flesh. No, Carl, you forgot something. Look at the text. Since Christ suffered for us, his sufferings were all substitutionary. Picture a cup, a huge goblet, and then imagine every time that evil has been committed by you, the cup fills up more. 
This is the cup of God's holy wrath against evil as the good king that he is, and he must punish sin. It's filling up, drip, drip, drip. Justice must be done. Someone must drink that cup. Either you will drink the poison cup of God's judgment on your sin, your rebellion, or someone. Oh, but who would be so amazingly gracious to drink it in our place? In these moments on the cross, Jesus is drinking that cup. He's draining it to the bottom. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake, God made him to be sin. Paul says again in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So Jesus is being treated by the Father as a curse to be wiped out, and it's for your sake and mine. All of his sufferings that I just enumerated a handful of a moment ago, all those sufferings were intended for you. In Romans 5, the apostle Paul says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He goes on, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, in our place, as our substitute. Do you hear that? The New Testament everywhere wants to insist that Jesus died for the ungodly, for the unholy, for the profane, for the wicked, while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies. In all these scenes documenting the events of Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, you see the whole of humanity arrayed as the enemies of Jesus, fully, completely against him, even as he is acting absolutely for them for us, giving us his life so that we could live. And God did this, the Father and the Son agreeing together because of their great love for you. The Father and the Son love you in spite of you. Notice those words again in verse 1, so that we have the indicative set completely right. For us, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, All of his sufferings were substitutionary. This has been completely accomplished. Nothing can be done in addition to Jesus' redemptive sufferings. By them he paid our sin debt in full. You'll remember the one word that Jesus cries at the close of his time on the cross. To tell us time. Paid in full. When you hear this statement, all that is necessary is to believingly place your trust in him as your substitute. That's the indicative. Anything I say from here on is grounded in that, that Jesus has accomplished salvation. Now comes the imperative. Look at our text. Arm yourselves. This is the imperative. It's stated in that grammatical way. Since... Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves. This is about what you and I must do in light of Christ's completed sufferings, the indicative, what Christ has done. Now, I want you to notice what Peter commands every believer to do, is to take up arms. Now, the parallel text in Ephesians 6 is much more famous, Paul's exhortation to put on the whole armor of God. But Peter is saying the exact same thing here. I rarely make a sermon into a Greek lesson, but in this case, it's a necessity. 
Look at the English term you have in verse 1. Where the imperative comes, the way it's translated is arm yourselves. But this is a Greek word which I doubt you know. Listen to the Greek word so you can hear the ethnic connotation. It's hoplisasta. Hoplisasta. And it's drawn from Greek military history. There were a strand of Greek soldiers who were the hoplites. They were Greek soldiers who made this technique famous at first. They carried offensive weapons, swords, and defensive weapons. They each carried in their other hand a large shield. It looked like a garage door. And this shield was so large, four feet by three feet, that you could crouch behind it and be completely hidden. Or if you raised it and all of them, this is the hoplites were who created what's known as the phalanx maneuver, when they would march close as a unit up to the walls of an opposing city, they would all raise their shields, lock them together above their heads so anything that came down upon them from the walls would just bounce off their shields. There was no space in there for arrows or fiery darts. This, their shields consisted of two layers of wood glued together, covered with hide, bound with iron, dipped in water to extinguish flaming arrows. And the soldiers fought side by side. They formed the famous maneuver known as the phalanx with a solid wall of shields above them. So when Peter uses this word, look at the word there, arm yourselves. It's the Greek word hoplisasta. His readers all knew, oh, Peter's telling us to fight like hoplites. They understand that Peter is calling them to arm themselves like the hoplite Greek fighters. And this meant two things. To fight against an enemy and to work in concert with other soldiers or in our case, with other believers. I want you to think about this imperative that Peter gives. Arm yourselves. The true believer knows he's in a fight. He knows he has three deadly enemies. They're coming at him from three directions. The world, the devil, and then your most inveterate enemy, the flesh. And your three enemies never take a day off. They work in concert with one another against you. You will fight them on the last day of your life. Our confession in the section just after the one we confessed a moment ago says, these three engage in continual and irreconcilable war. The believer must know his enemy and their strategies. <clears throat> so when Peter says, arm yourselves, arm yourselves against who? Against what? Think with me about your three enemies that you must be armed against. The first is the world. The world system is earthly culture under the dominion of Satan. Satan is its prince, and he directs its subjects. The world has a distinct methodology, at least two of those methodologies that the world works. And see if you recognize this in your life today. The world, first of all, wants to choke out the word. In the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, we're told that the thorny ground here hears the word and initially receives it and delights in the word, but the cares of the world choke out the word. This process is slow. It's unnoticeable. All spiritual vitality slowly saps away. The cares of the world, whether it be promotions or vacations or events or fads or fashions or busyness, slowly take the turf that is to be reserved for Christ. But not only does the world choke out the word, the world wants to mold you into its shape. 
In Romans 12, Paul speaks of how the world will exert every pressure it can to squeeze your thinking into its mold, especially in a media culture where the world employs networks and advertising and publishing houses and the internet. We have to recognize that the world is sending constant messages to us, think this way, believe this way, cast off that biblical perspective. The snare of the world is to pull you away from Christ. For the Christian to resist the seduction of the world, he must wake up every morning and say, I will go against the tide today. He must forego pleasing man to please God. This is where we daily, as we put on the armor, say, I am choosing to be, in the world's eyes, a fool for Christ's sake. How do you stand against the world? Never play down the differences between the church and the world. It's a stark antithesis. Never model yourself after their goals. Repent regularly of your failure to see this total war in its starkest terms. And recognize that the world is passing away. That's John's argument in 1 John. So spend much more time making provisions for a settled eternity instead of a few transitory decades. Wean your heart away from the world. Self-consciously mortify your affections for its priorities and worldview. Put off worldly lust. Put on sobriety and godliness. James tells us that pure religion is a passion to even be unspotted by the world. Of course, the ultimate remedy for Overcoming the world is to look away from ourselves and to look directly to Christ, the one who said, I am not of this world and neither is my kingdom. But that's just the first front of our battle, the world, that we must arm ourselves against. The second and the most difficult is the flesh, the enemy of the flesh. You have an enemy within. I've said it often, I'll say it again. If the world and the devil were both taken away from you, you still have your biggest problem dwelling inside of you, the flesh. Most use of sanctification, they want to externalize sin and say, it's the world's fault, it's the devil's fault, when our biggest problem is our own sinful heart, our enemy with them. What is the flesh? When the New Testament uses this term, it doesn't denote the physical body. It means the whole man in his creatureliness, sinfulness, and weakness. The flesh is human nature under the dominion of sin. So how are you supposed to respond to the flesh? Peter gives us the imperative, arm yourself. You're to deal harshly with it. You're to respond to the flesh with harshness. Romans 8 tells us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. The Lord is commanding you to go to war against sinful practices and thoughts, to not be reasonable with the flesh. Don't give sin second chances to even deal with sins of the flesh preemptively. So repeatedly, the New Testament authors tell us this. Colossians 3 says, put to death fornication, uncleanness, covetousness. Jesus speaks so harshly against the flesh. He says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, if your eye offends you, Pluck it out, is speaking to people who have a problem with lust and pornography. He's telling you to deal harshly. In fact, he says, if your right hand offends you, chop it off. He's speaking there of radical amputation, of dealing with, dealing harshly with your propensity to sin. To mortify the flesh means you know your weakness well. 
You know it by personality and temperament and habit and attitude. If the premier sin of your flesh is anger or lust or pride, then study that sin well. Perfect your understanding of it so you'll spot it quickly when it begins to rear its head. To mortify the flesh means to avoid the occasions and places the flesh loves. To mortify the flesh means to be busy in vocation. The flesh loves idleness. To mortify the flesh means controlling all bodily demands, whether it's for sleep or food or anything else. This is why Paul says, giving us a tiny insight into how to do battle against the flesh. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I discipline my body and I make it my slave. Your third enemy that you must take up arms against every day as your, heat, as your feet hit the floor is the evil one. You remember we're told in Ezekiel 28 that he was created. He was created like all the other angels. He's a creature, therefore he's not eternal, not omnipotent, not omnipresent, not omniscient. He's a dependent creature. He was created full of wisdom and beauty, we're told in Ezekiel 28. He was the highest of angelic beings. He was holy and righteous. Pride was the beginning of his fall. And he will attempt you. He will attempt to seduce you into joining him in his proud rebellion. Isaiah 14 says that the, the devil sought to exalt himself to the position of Jehovah in his vanity. He declared, I will be like God. It was this act of rebellion that caused him to fall. Both 2 Peter and Jude Speaking of Satan and those angels who rebelled with him calls them angels who left their first estate. He's powerful. Ephesians 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. The unsaved are largely under his dominion. In fact, we're going to see in the next chapter of 1 Peter, in 1 Peter 5, Peter calls him a roaring lion always seeking someone to devour. He has schemes. Paul speaks of them in Ephesians 6. He calls them the wiles of the devil, but his schemes are predictable. His scheme is to always get you to think contrary to God's word and to act disobediently to God's law, always. If you're converted and regenerate, he hates you. He hates you because you bear the image of Christ. He hates you because you're the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus for good works. He hates you because you fled his domain. And he wants you back. He has seen enough people make a profession of faith, but then like Judas, become apostates and wander back to his dark kingdom. He's seen enough apostates that he will keep trying even after you've made a profession of faith. Jesus, you remember, said those frightening words to Peter. The night before his crucifixion when Jesus said, Peter, Satan has desired to have you, to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Let me remind you now of the arms you have at your disposal, because after you hear of these three enemies, you say, Carl, what's the use? These three enemies are so powerful, the world and the devil, and then I have this internal problem of the flesh. Look at Peter's imperative. Arm yourself. This... The arms you have are called in Ephesians 6 in the parallel that Paul writes, almost mirroring this. They're called the armor of God because your arms are designed by God, provided by God, agreeable to God. This armor is not at all of man's cleverness or devising. 
And by putting on the armor of God, you're remembering the principle taught by Christ when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. If it's not the armor of God, then you're doomed. You'll be steamrolled every day by all three of your enemies if you don't put on the armor of God. Because apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Men have tried to come up with better armor for standing against the evil one. Things like, well, what my armor is, I'm going, to, I'm going to seclude myself from the world in monasteries. This is known as the flight rather than fight method. But none of these worldly mechanisms for fighting spiritual warfare are the least bit effective because they're not the armor of God. If you study the pieces of the armor, I'll list them for you in a moment, but if you study the pieces of the armor, every part of you is to be covered except the back to show that the Christian is never to turn and retreat, but always to face his enemies. The armor of God is offensive, sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's defensive, the shield of faith. It's an armor that's been proven over and over again. This armor is spiritual, not carnal, and it's suitable for turning back every attack of spiritual enemies. The armor is only for believers. You will never see an unregenerate person see the need for spiritual armor and desire to put it on. Why? They don't want to fight against the world and the flesh and the devil. They embrace them. And so today, if you never have any desire to put on the armor, I seriously doubt you're regenerate. Because only the regenerate man is in the fight. The armor is a complete set. That's why Peter's fellow apostle Paul will say in Ephesians 6 to put on the whole armor. Only wearing part of the armor leaves the believer somewhat exposed to the arrows of the evil one. But with this armor, you can stand. By putting on this armor, you're saying to the enemy, you have a fight on your hands with me. My intention is to battle you to the death. Now, the obvious inference is without the armor, you will fall. Your enemies are fearsome. They're mighty, invisible, and they have your flesh to cooperate with. Without this armor, you're open to every single arrow of the evil one. And so this is why Peter gives the imperative. Arm yourselves. Use the means. God has provided this impenetrable armor. The man is a fool who thinks he can withstand such fearsome enemies unarmed and unarmored. In Ephesians 6, Paul lists for you these, these seven pieces of armor. Rehearse them with me. Seven pieces. There's the belt of truth. There's the breastplate of righteousness. There is the shodding of the feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Fourth, there's the shield of faith by which you are able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. There's the helmet of salvation. There's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And finally... Praying always. This is what Peter's speaking of when he gives the imperative to be armed. Now, Peter's incredibly contemporary. For those of you who have bought the lie, the Bible's an old book. It has nothing to say to me today. Look at verse 3. Peter is talking to people who are converted, but who had a rough background. And he speaks of three categories of sin that they come out of. These are largely Gentiles that he's writing to. He speaks of people whose background was one of sexual sin. He talks about, in verse 3, 
lewdness and lusts. These are people who, who these speak of any sexual desire which is unlawful, any sexual activity outside of marriage. And then he speaks of a second sin background that these readers came out of, one of substance abuse. Look what he says. Drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties. This is any use of substances where you lose control of your faculties, where you're no longer under the control and the filling of the Holy Spirit, but under the control of those spirits. And third, he speaks of those who come out of a background of idolatry. He calls them abominable idolatries. Any action of worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Now notice that I said Peter is incredibly contemporary. Look at those, that listing in verse 3. Peter could be writing this sentence, this verse, this morning in November of 2023. And I want you to notice how the sins cataloged in verses 1 through 3 show how the world the flesh, and the devil conspire against you. Look at what Peter says of the lost man. He says in verse 2 that he's in the flesh. And then he speaks of the world in verse 2 and 3. He says, you're chasing the lusts of men, doing the will of Gentiles. And so Peter's response is to say this to the converted man. Look at verse 3. He says to the converted man, enough. You've done these things enough. And what did you gain from all of these activities? Well, today I would answer this way, and I've had to answer this to physical flesh and blood people. What did you gain from these things? STDs, a liver that's diseased, an empty bank account, and a lifetime's worth of guilt. I don't know a mature believer that will save their life before conversion. Yeah, those were the good times. Talk to any converted man. And when he's asked to look back upon his life before conversion, what will come tumbling out of his mouth is regret, sadness, shame. And that's what Peter is saying here. You spent enough of your past lifetime. And so let me ask you by way of application are you armed? Grounded in the indicative of Christ suffering for you. Are you ready to take up arms because of what Christ has done for you? As you think on this word, can you say every day when your feet hit the floor that you view what's going to happen that day as warfare? Do you even grasp that you're in a battle to the death? If you're to overcome the evil one and the world and the flesh, you must know you're in a fight. The Christian life is not a playground, it's a battleground. There are no neutral observers. Jesus said, you are either, pick one side, you're either for him or against him. There are no conscientious objectors. No Christians are allowed out of this fight on the grounds that blood makes them squeamish. Every true believer is in the fight. Have you taken up arms against the evil one today? Perhaps, if not, it could be because you belong to him. Do you know their, your enemies and their schemes? But I want to especially speak to senior citizens. One of the things that pastorally deeply troubles me 
It's often I've had conversations with people who said, Carl, when I retired from my job, I basically retired from my spiritual life. I'm just too old to do battle. The evil one wouldn't care about doing battle against me. My friend, you are just the type of person the evil one delights to attack. You may want to engage in spiritual retirement, but the evil one won't. God's word to you is to do battle even when you have one foot in the grave, to battle with your last breath, your enemies. Arm yourselves. Let's pray. Our Father, we marvel all over again at the substitutionary sufferings of Jesus for us. But remind us now today by your Holy Spirit how we are to respond, that we must respond by taking up arms against our sin and our enemies. And so burn this word into our brain, bring it often to our remembrance, and by so doing, sanctify us into the very image.